I call it the shadows. I call victims of sexual abuse being taken into the shadows where they feel like they're all alone, where they feel like they um, are lost, where they feel like they have to protect themselves at all times. And I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking to myself, ain't nobody ever going to hurt me again. And so I remember just emotionally just kind of putting up a wall. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. My name is Nick LaPara, and this is the first podcast episode that I am recording from my new office in the back end of our property. I built out an office in our shed out back. It's fantastic. I don't get bugged. I don't get bothered. And now I can do more deep work, more head down work, create more stuff for you. We tried to do this podcast last week because April was Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And you'll see why that's relevant in just a moment. But we're not doing it in April. Uh, This will release uh, beginning of May. And that's that because the story is still powerful whether it's in April, Sexual Assault Awareness Month, or whether it's in May or any time. So today I get to share with you my conversation with my friend, Kenny Stubblefield. Kenny lives in Memphis and he has for most of his life. Kenny is a victim of sexual assault but it doesn't end there. He is also a survivor of sexual assault, but it doesn't end there either. He is now an advocate for sexual assault victims and survivors. And that sequence is important. He'll bring that up and talk about it from victim to survivor to advocate. In our chat, he'll share his story, how he is still overcoming horrible things that have happened to him, and how he is using the evils committed against him to help others recover and heal. He'll also share a big project he's working on now that will help him continue the work he's currently doing, but in a much bigger way. And I'm super excited for that project he's working on. Now, this next little bit, I'm sharing this now. And also when you start the conversation, I'll also reiterate it, but I think it's important to share it twice. This podcast conversation is full of explicit content as he shares things that happened to him in detail, which I believe is important. If you are a victim of sexual assault or rape or sexual abuse of any kind, or if you find hearing stories like this hard to deal with emotionally, and I understand, please proceed with caution. I do hope you can find a way to listen because there is hope and healing in this story, but it is extremely hard to listen to at times. Another detail worth mentioning before we begin is that Kenny's sexual abuse happened at the hands of a church leader, a church Kenny was part of when he was growing up. And the project he's working on not only has to do with the growth of the Me Too movement, but also the Church Too movement. If you, you're most likely aware of the Me Too movement, I hope you are because it's important. We need to pay attention to it. We need to give people space to speak into it. But there's also this Church Too movement that is happening where church leaders are being exposed. And I'm glad for this because whether you're religious or not, I hope you'll agree that the church is no place for abuse of this kind. Nowhere is no place for abuse of this kind, especially in a place of worship like that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kenny Stubblefield. Let's go. So here's what we're going to do. This is going to be very meaningful because we are going to tell, we're going to talk about some really hard stuff. And specifically, we're talking about not just uh, sexual abuse in general, 
but sexual abuse within the church, right? So do you still ident- you identify as a Christian? Yes. You've, you know, we, we're going through our faith journey, but you still identify as a Christian, so do I. And there are a lot, there's a lot to talk about. There's too much, too much to talk about when it comes to sexual abuse within the church. And so specifically, we can have other conversations other times about sexual abuse in general, victims of sexual abuse, how do we help? How do we come alongside? All that stuff. The Me Too movement, very much alive and well, and I'm very glad for that, that people are now feeling confident to come out and tell their story and get help finally. Um, But today we're gonna focus specifically on sexual abuse within the church, what we can do, what's happening, how we can help, um, and how we can come alongside you, Kenny, and support what you're doing. So again, thanks for being here. Super excited. Nick, thank you for having me, man. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. And I uh, just appreciate the opportunity um, with the, the platform that you've created here with Let's Give a Damn and and um, the opportunity to share my story and, and how, um, and just share the stories of others that are experiencing um, just an evil, evil act against them. Yeah, absolutely. So... Here's how we're gonna start. I would love for you to tell your story. Your story is not gonna be all about what happened to you, but get to that part as well, right? So tell, give, it, give, it, give me context for where you grew up, your family structure, the kinds of things you were into, um, what was your involvement in church at the time? All of, give us all of that before we get to the other part of the conversation, which will be what you're up to, how you're helping, how you're advocating for uh, these on behalf of these people and what and this kind of bigger thing that we're going to talk about at the end, this big thing that you're involved in right now that I'm excited to talk about and to see that come to fruition very soon. So start with your story, though. Yeah, so um, I was born in, in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, my dad was in uh, seminary when I was born. Um, my entire extended family is actually from Memphis. So within about a year and a half, I think we were back in Memphis and um, spent the rest of my early childhood years there. Um, in terms of my church um, experience, we grew up in the church. Uh, you know, we were there every time the doors were open. Um, somebody told me the other day, a survivor of um, sexual abuse told me the other day that their family not only was there when the doors were open, they opened the doors, you know? And so, um, and I, I, re- I resonated with that because that's the way my family was. You know, my, my parents are still married. They've been married for 37. They've been married for 39 years. Um, I have a twin sister and a younger sister. Um, so there's three of us. And um, we, had a, we have a strong-knit family. Um, you know, we have, my family's uh, close-knit and, and love each other well. In my story that I wrote on Facebook, um, I talked about specifically my family and said that my family was not, not only did they, um, not only did I know that they loved me just because I was a part of their family, but they, they were, they were very um, intent on showing love in an active, meaningful way. So I grew up in a good home. You know, I grew up in a home that I knew that I was loved um, by tangible um, actions and, and just words and affirmation and things like that. So yeah, man, I had a good childhood. Um, uh, like I said, grew up in church. My dad took a, a job in, in 1992 um, in South Texas, down by the border of Mexico at a church. Um, he was a youth pastor there for two and a half years. Um, and I think, you know, my story's not um, abnormal for, um, you know, for anybody that's in middle school, but middle school's a tough time for pretty much everybody. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I, I remember I was... It was especially tough for me because I was, I was in a, a community where I was 
uh, a minority at my school. Um, there was it was uh, mainly um, um, Hispanic people, um, which I've loved that the that I've been able to be surrounded by people that are different from me. Um, but it did make me a target for bullying. Um, I was the second string quarterback on my seventh grade football team and um, was a country boy from Tennessee, had a Southern accent that nobody really knew how to, how to handle. Um, uh, during my seventh grade year, um, dislocated my kneecap playing football, so I was on crutches for a while. And I just remember um, that was really the time when the bullying really started going full force. I, you know, specifically remember one time crutching my way out to the football field outside of school and turning a corner around the back end of the school. And um, the whole football team was standing right there and they had a bunch of rocks in their hands and they just started pelting me with rocks, you know, because I was injured and, and I was just easy to pick on. And, and so thankfully they weren't big enough to do, um, you know, crazy damage, but those things scar you, those things mark you. And, and I think for me, how it scarred me and marked me was, man, all I really wanted to do was be accepted. Like all I really wanted was uh, to be accepted and be liked. And, and um, I knew that when living in South Texas, I was never going to be there, be that way. And so those two and a half years were rough, man. They were, they were really, really tough. And when I was in eighth grade, we moved back to Memphis. My dad um, left that job. We moved back to Memphis um, he is a graphic designer in Memphis. And so he has had his own company now for 30 years, um, you know, uh, doing graphic design for companies all over the country. And, um, we moved back to Memphis and I came back to Memphis really broken. I came back to Memphis in a, in a, in a really weird place and didn't know really where to, um, how to fit in, you know, and, 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 but had this innate desire to just be one of the guys, to be, to fit in, um, change my hairstyle up constantly um, just to fit in. I had my hair done a certain way when I was living down in South Texas that only worked in South Texas. Come back to Memphis and I have my hairstyle that way and everybody's just like, what the heck are you doing? Like, this is crazy. And um, so then in ninth grade, we joined a church called Emmanuel Baptist Church, and um, it was like an immediate place of acceptance. Um, the youth group was thriving. Um, There's a youth pastor there by the name of Nolan Bobbitt, and um, uh, it was a it was a it was a, it was a pretty cool place, man. Um, I remember feeling like, okay, these are my people. You know, I can I can really. Um, uh, be a part of the in crowd, be a part of the cool crowd, be, be in that group. Um, now, this is just my ninth grade mind speaking. Uh, you know, this is just my thought process back then. Um, it was in, I think my ninth grade year was great. Um, tenth grade year, um, a church, a local church in Memphis had a falling out with a group of people in their church. Um, had an argument about some stuff. And, and so this large group, probably about 10 or so families, decided to, to leave together, leave this church together, and come find a new church. They settled at Emmanuel Baptist. Um, one of those people that, were, uh, that came over from that church was a, a 25-year-old college student by the name of Chris Carwile. And Chris immediately came to the church and um, started to intertwine himself into our youth ministry. Um, initially as an intern, um, 
initially volunteered, did a lot of the drama ministry stuff, um, which is, if you're not Southern Baptist, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but did the drama ministry, um, did uh, puppet ministry stuff. Just go YouTube that. Just, Just go YouTube youth group drama ministry and you'll, you'll get a, you'll you'll get get a taste. Yeah, it's, you, you, gotta be, you gotta be born in the South in the Southern Baptist world to understand what I'm talking about. But um, uh, So he, he kind of led those, voluntarily led those. Then he became an intern. And within six months of that time, um, was hired on staff as an associate youth pastor. Um, you know, I didn't know, I don't know a lot about, I didn't know a lot about psychology and understanding the mind of people back then. Um, I just was living my, in my moment then. As a 37-year-old man now looking back at, at Chris, I would say um, he was an extremely toxic person. Um, he immediately came into our youth group and started creating divisions and, but it was in such a weird way. He would, he was 25 years old, grown man, and he would just start beefs with the girls in the youth group. Like, it was so weird. It was like real petty stuff. Like, he would just start beefs and like, you know, I hate this person. You're either on my side or you're on her side. And this guy's an associate youth pastor at the church, and he's causing all this drama. It was just, it was, it was a really weird, really weird time. And it became very apparent very quickly that... Um, if you weren't on Chris's side, you were not going to succeed. You were not going to be successful in whatever it was you were trying to do. And that's for all of us in that time frame, ninth and 10th grade was just to be accepted, was just to be um, in, the, in, the, in the cool crowd. Um, and, and so Chris made it, made it very, very apparent very quickly that to be a part of the in crowd, to be a part of the cool crowd, you had to be on his side. Um, which, and looking back at it now, having served in youth ministry, having done, worked with kids my entire adult career, um, I would fire that person so fast. You couldn't, you, I mean, you <laughs> yeah. know, like, how do you, but I, I, yeah, so, every business book out there would say, get that guy off your team. Yeah. He's poisoned. He's poisoned. He's toxic. You know, get him out of here. Um, unfortunately, he didn't get sent out. But um, one of the ways that Chris would kind of, initiate you into the cool crowd um, was he would have sleepovers at his house. And um, I was never invited to one. And it just drove me crazy, bro. Like I was like, why am I not invited? I want to go. Like I, I would hear about all these fun times they would have at Chris's house. And so all just, the other guys were getting invited. Well, a few of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but all the, yeah, the, yeah ones, all the, the ones that were in, right. There was a visible, like, they went on the sleepovers, and now they're on the in crowd. Absolutely, kind of, yeah. absolutely. And so, but I would do things like, just to be accepted, there were certain things I would do, like um, Chris had short, buzzed head, but he dyed it blonde. So I, I did that. I buzzed my head short and dyed it blonde. And just did some really weird things, you know, like start wearing certain clothes, watching certain movies, doing certain things. Um, and it was, it would never... It would never get me there, you know, it never get me to where I wanted to go. And man, it used to just, it, it really kind of, as I look back at it now, it really um, played into, you know, from the time that I was 12 years old on, just this desire to be accepted, this desire to be a part of the cool crowd um, made me very, very vulnerable. And, and so you know, as I look as I look back at it now, and 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 remember my story, and hear other people's stories, and just read 
about how sexual abusers um, gain access to their victims, you, you think about these ideas called grooming techniques. And, 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 I, and I look at the way that Chris responded to me and did things to me, and it, it was, he groomed me for a long time. Um, because I was vulnerable, because I was in a vulnerable place, because all I wanted was to be accepted. And so for him, part of his grooming technique that he would use is he would, there was times where he would pull me in like I was almost there and then immediately push me away, pull me in and push me away, pull me in and push me away. And it created this like tension within me that um, I'm almost there. And then, man, what have I done wrong? I've done something wrong here to not be, to not be accepted by Chris. And I think he did, I, that was an intentional act by him to pull, sure, yeah. push and pull, push and pull, to do certain things, to, you know, those were grooming techniques that he used over a two-year stretch with me. Um, and I remember it was um, uh, 1996, um, the end of November, right before Thanksgiving. We were having a big, um, and again, um, if you're not Southern Baptist, you won't know what I'm talking about. We don't, actually, yeah, it was in Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving time. <sighs> You don't celebrate secular holidays. You celebrate, you have like fall festivals and things like yeah. that. You, you have to be a part of the Southern Baptist Church to understand. Isn't fall festival in place of Halloween? That's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah they don't yeah. do Halloween. Yeah. They do you don't celebrate Halloween, festival. you do fall festivals. Um, and so we were having a big event at the church on a Saturday morning. And um, on Friday night, the whole youth group was there. And um, we were getting stuff ready for the next morning. We were there pretty late. And I remember Chris... Um, coming up to me and saying, hey, man, why don't you come spend the night at my house and we'll just meet up at the, we'll just go to the, the church early in the morning on Saturday. And I was like, it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. I'm in, you know. I was so excited. And um, I remember calling my dad and saying, hey, I'm going to go spend the night at Chris's house. And his response to me was, no, you're not. I don't like Chris. I don't trust him. And I remember being like, no, you got to let me go. You got to let me go. You got to let me go. He told me the other day, actually, after he heard me, heard me tell the story one time, that he said, Kenny, you actually told me that everybody else was going to be there, that all the other kids were going to be there. And he, and he said, and I don't think you would have lied to me back then. He said, I think you probably thought that everybody was going to be there. Sure. You didn't and think it was just you. Just yeah. going to be me. And so after a little while of kind of imploring him to let me go, he relented and allowed me to go. And so, you know, it's funny because um, memory-wise, I don't have great memory when it comes to um, before and after. But I remember that night, like, I can remember everything. Like, I remember the house that we were at. Um, they had a downstairs basement. He was living with his parents at the time. Had a downstairs basement with some shag carpet on the floor some kind of funky colored shag carpet and refrigerator full of uh, Michelob light or Michelob Ultra. And um, you walk down this little hallway and there's this big den. It was, like a, it was like a basement that was converted into a den. And you walk down and you see on the left-hand side, there's the big TV, a big screen TV, but it was before they were flat screens up on the wall. Super deep, huge. Super deep, yeah, yeah. massive yep. black, yep. you know, big screen TV. He had a leather couch on the side wall. Um, a another couch like a, a, a sectional, and then a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A recliner right next to that. And so we were watching TV, and I remember specifically that he had a big black box on top of that on top of that TV. 
he was hijacking cable from our satellite TV from other people. Um, so he had one of those black boxes that he had access to every single channel you could ever think of. And so, man, I'm thinking I'm in, I'm here. Like I'm at Chris's house. This is amazing. I'm here. So we're watching TV and he's flipping through the channels. And, and so mind you, this is 1996 before, um, the internet was easily accessible. Um, and so now at 16 years old, most young men can access pornography pretty quickly, you know, through the internet and things like that. Um, but in 1996, there wasn't that accessibility, you know? And so I remember him flipping through the channels on the TV and um, stopped on a pornographic channel. And I, next thing I know, I'm seeing two people having sex on, on TV. And Was I remember, this your, like, first? First time ever. First encounter with, like, straight-up pornography. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I remember him acting embarrassed that that was on the TV, but he didn't turn it off of it. Um, and I was like kind of shocked and like, oh my gosh, but um, man, I'm 16 years old. You know, I got a libido. And, and so um, it started to kind of like pique my interest, you know, and, and I knew that what I was watching was wrong. But at the same time, it was hard to take my eyes off of that. And and I think Chris did that on purpose too. I think that was a grooming technique for that night in particular to kind of get that, get me in that mindset, if that makes sense. Like you've done something wrong. Now, and I'll explain later, I think, why he, why he did that because he did some other things later on. But um, so I remember that night we were um, getting ready for bed and I said, okay, cool, I'll, I'll sleep on this couch. It was a leather couch. He said, "No, no, no. If you if you sleep on the leather couch, you sweat at night, and you'll you'll stain the couch and it'll ruin that leather couch." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, I'll just sleep on the floor then." He said, "No, no, no, no. If you um, you sweat, but then you also skin cells and stuff, and it'll get in the carpet." And he goes, "And also, my mom likes to to vacuum early in the morning, and so if you are down here laying on the floor, she can't vacuum." And and I was like, "Okay, where do I sleep?" And he said, "Well, come and sleep in my bed with me." Um, he had a, I remember he had a queen size waterbed. Um, his room was off to the side of the den. It was still downstairs away from everybody. His room bed was off to the far right against the wall. And he, I remember he had two big windows in his room that were, that had black sheets covering it just completely blacked out. And, um, uh, so I remember getting in bed and thankfully that night I had on a t-shirt and, um, uh, basketball shorts, but I remember falling asleep, um, and I don't know how long, how much time passed, but waking up with his hand on the outside of my shorts, grabbing my penis, and I remember thinking, well, that's weird, um, so that, that he must, must have been a mistake, he, he must have accidentally, you know, because we're kind of close to each other. Yeah, falling asleep, whatever. Yeah, so I move his hand and I go back to sleep. And then the next time I wake up, I um, feel his hand inside my shorts and he's, his hand is on my penis and he's stroking it. And I remember me just freezing. And, you know, I've had a lot of people say, well, why didn't you, when you beat him up, you know, why didn't yeah, you, right. you know, why didn't you fight him? And, and, I, and I just say to them, yeah, man, looking back at it now, I wish I had, but. Um, That's the last, I mean, there's so much going on there that prevents people yeah, from doing the, the, the thing they 
in retrospect wish they could do. Wish they could have done, yeah. But you just don't know how you're going to react in situations like that until it happens, right? And I remember just freezing and just being like, and taking his hand away from me and rolling over to my side and um, and just, man, it was just, I was freaked out. Now, I know this, a lot of 16-year-olds these days, you know, experience sexual things a lot earlier than I, than, than we did back in the day, but that was my introduction to any kind of sexual contact. I had never even kissed a girl at that point, you know, by the time I was 16 years old. And so, um, but I remember just laying there that night, not going back to sleep and just scared out of my mind and, and, and just, okay, what's going on here? Like what just happened? And I mean, the most glorious moment of that entire night was when I, all of a sudden I started seeing light shine in a little bit, like, light through the windows. I remember just being like, oh man, yes, finally, you know, I can get up and go to this church thing, get out of here. Um, and, um, but it was during that night, like, I tell people all the time that what happens with sexual abuse victims is the physical side of the sexual abuse is horrific, but it's the mental, the psychological, the emotional damage that happens that really creates long-lasting effects. And so for me, those however many hours that it was of just sitting there, not being able to sleep, knowing that I'd just been violated, knowing that something had happened to me that I didn't like, that, that I didn't think was okay, um, it was like all of a sudden, all these thoughts just started pouring into my brain of nobody will believe you if you say anything. Nobody will, nobody's going to nobody, nobody's going to believe you. They're going to think, think, think these things about you. Um, this is Chris, you know, he's the sure. associate youth, yeah, pastor. youth pastor. Who's going to believe me over him? You know, nobody's going to believe that he did that. Um, and so by, I remember by the morning when the sun came up, um, after not having slept the rest of the night, I remember convincing myself that my best mode of action, my best, my best method of action was just to not say anything. Just don't talk and, and don't say a word. So I didn't, I didn't say anything. Um, and so went about my business Saturday, man, just really just kind of in a fog, you know what I'm saying? Like went to the church thing and kind of in a fog. About two weeks later, I still hadn't talked to anybody about it. And I remember getting called into my youth pastor's office, Nolan. And um, that was never a good thing. Um, Nolan, Nolan ran a, Nolan was, was a, he was the kind of youth pastor man that he operated. He, he was young as well, was charismatic. Um, and people really, he kind of created also an environment of um, the faithful ones and the non-faithful ones, non-faithful, faithful crowd. And, and so there was a lot of things that you, like if you were faithful, you were a part of that group. You were, you were his guy, his girl, you know. I remember getting called into Nolan's office and walked into his office and Nolan is sitting there and Chris is sitting there. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what's going on? Because I hadn't said anything to anybody at that point. And um, no one had this look. Man, I just remember this look. He it was, it was angry. Like, he was just so angry. I could see that anger just oh. coming out of his face. And he said, Kenny, sit down. And so I sat down, and, and he said, 
um, I talked to Chris. Chris came to me, and I talked to Chris, and he told me that you spent the night at his house the other night. And um, he said, and, and, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, Chris must have told him what happened. And it was almost like a glimmer of hope, right? Like Nolan is angry at Chris right now, like, and he's wanting to know what happened so he can help me and do something to Chris, you know, figure out what to do about Chris. And I said, yeah. I was like, yeah. And he goes, Chris told me that um, the night you spent the night at his house, he caught you looking at porn on his TV in his house. And he said, did you do that? And I was like, yeah. You know, just shocked. Just, just, but I was scared out of my mind at the same time. And, um, and so Nolan having that idea of the faithful versus the non-faithful, you do certain things, you're faithful, you don't, you're not faithful, um, said, man, Kenny, I'm extremely disappointed in you. And basically, you're not going to be able to be involved in his youth group for a little while. Um, some of the more f- the things that I did that would consider to me be faithful, those opportunities were taken from me. And so... At any point during that meeting, did you make eye contact with Chris? I don't remember. I don't think that I did, but I don't remember specifically. And then what Chris did, so not only then did he tell a lie about what happened that night with the pornography thing with Nolan, which in turn calls Nolan to then like put me in that unfaithful crowd. Um, He then said, Chris then got up and went out and started telling everybody in the youth group, all the kids, yeah, I caught Kenny looking at porn at my house. He did all this kind of stuff. And so... I left that meeting and left those opportunities, doing all those opportunities, and honestly thought to myself, well, now nobody will believe me if I come out and say Chris did this to me. Um, Because now I'm one of the non-faithful ones, and all I'm going to look like now is somebody who is disgruntled, angry about... back at Chris. You know, angry about being outed for being a porn watcher, you know, um, and vindictive and just looking to try to hurt Chris by saying, well, this is what he did to me. And so that was almost like a further, I call it the shadows. I call victims of sexual abuse being taking it, taken into the shadows where they feel like they're all alone, where they feel like they um, are lost, where they feel like they have to protect themselves at all times. And I remember walking out of that meeting and thinking to myself, ain't nobody ever going to hurt me again. And so, um, I remember just emotionally just kind of putting up a wall, you know, and saying, nobody's going to penetrate that wall. Um, and, you know, I didn't, tell, I didn't say a word to anybody for about a, until about a year later. Um, and that's when, that's when I found out about some other kids, and we decided to come forward and tell our story to our church. Specifically with Chris? Mm-hmm. What happened during that time? And then how long was it between that period and when you kind of started telling your story more publicly? Because it still wasn't, at that point, it was just within your church, right? It wasn't kind of a public, or was it? No, it was definitely private. Um, So the abuse happened in 1997, um, 1997. Um, 1998 is when I, um, a year later is when I told the church about it. Um, the reason I told the church about it was because 
I was sitting outside my best friend in all the world. His name is Brooks Hansen. Um, I've known him since I was three years old. Um, and we went to school together, went to church together. He's just my, my best friend. He's the best man at my wedding. He's just, to this day, my best friend. And um, Shout out to Brooks. Brooks Hansen. So we're sitting outside his house one night after church, and I could just tell Brooks was just pissed off about some stuff. So I was just talking to him. I said, man, what's going on? And, you know, are you okay? And he said, man, I'm just really angry. And I was like, what are you angry about? And he's like, I'm angry at Chris. And I was like, oh, I know why you're angry at Chris. And he was like, no, you don't. And I said, yeah, I do. Um, I said, is it because of some of the things that he's saying about you? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, Chris has been spreading a lot of rumors that you've been stealing stuff from his house. Oh, my gosh. And um, that you stole a T-shirt and you stole a, some boxers and, and stuff like that. And, and he was like, that's what he said? That's what he said I did? And he goes, well, let me tell you the real story. And he proceeded to tell me about his experience with Chris, his sexual abuse experience with Chris. And it had happened multiple times to Brooks. Um, and the reason he had to take a T-shirt and boxers was because he got he soiled his his yeah. clothes that the only clothes that he had at the house, so he had to take clothes from Chris's house because he was didn't have clothes to wear, um, and yet that was again just like my story a year before about the pornography looking at pornography, um, Chris was able to um, silence Brooks by demeaning him by saying he stole stuff out of his house, you know, things like that. Yeah. That was his method. And th those are the methods that abusers use. They seek to um, groom, abuse, and then silence. And that's, that's the way that Chris did it with us. And um, he silenced us by just destroying our character in front of the entire group to where nobody would be able to, nobody would believe us if we came forward to tell our stories. And I remember him telling me his story, and we we're sitting outside of his house. And you, Nick, do you ever get those like moments where you're just like almost like something just smacks you in the face, and it's just white hot, like oh my, like just fear almost, or I don't even know how to describe it. But I just remember yeah. sitting on the grass in front of his house and just laying back on the ground because my I thought I was about to pass out. It was like all the stuff that had happened to me a year before. Because at that point, honestly, I had kind of suppressed it all and just kind of pushed it all down. And it was like all of a sudden, all that came, came rushing back to me. And I remember sitting up and just looking at Brooks and going, dude, it happened to me too. What? Are you serious? I'm like, and I told him my story. And, and so we're just like, oh my God, like, oh my God, oh my God, what do we do? And I remember saying, man, I got to tell my dad. I got to tell my dad. So ran home um, to tell my dad and get a phone call from Brooks. And he's saying, dude, it happened to my brother too. His brother's name is Michael Hansen. Um, and in turn, we found out it happened to four other kids in the youth group as well. My God. So in a matter of a year and a half, he had abused and molested seven or eight boys in our youth group. Now... Brooks, Michael, and myself are the only three that have been willing to come forward at this point, but um, we know for a fact that there were others. And that was when, it's when I told my dad and called Nolan, the youth pastor, that all the cover-up started happening within the church. That sucks, dude. Like, there's so much there. Um, 
So you're 17 at the time, mm-hmm. right? This is, yeah, because you're eight, born in 80. Whatever, 81. 81. So yeah, 17, 18. Um, you're 37 now. So 20, that was 20 years ago. Um, what's, what's happened emotionally, physically, spiritually? Like, um, so it never became like this big public thing, but I know in the last couple of years, you've become much more vocal about it. Um, so what kind of happened over the last 20 years um, that I guess both negative and positive and ultimately the things that helped you gain the confidence to come out and talk about it and then begin, we'll get into, after you tell that part, we'll get into how you've been able to advocate on behalf of others, right? Because you came forward and told uh, your story. Yeah, so what's been happening? Yeah, so people have asked me in the past, like, you know, I I don't remember much about the next couple of years after that time frame, I have um, talked to my mom and asked her, what was I like after this? And she said, Kenny, you changed. Something in you changed. You weren't the, the smiling, happy-go-lucky kid that you were before. Um, and and I, I liken that to the fact that I just did, I, I didn't want to be vulnerable anymore. I had this, this, this shield up, right? And, and, and didn't the people want... you trusted the most and frankly were trying to gain approval from the most screwed yeah, you. Absolutely. And I would even look back at it and say at this point, um, and this is, this is a hard part of the conversation to talk about, but um, in their own way, um, my parents failed me uh, because when I did tell them, they didn't ask questions. Now, I think a lot of the reason they didn't ask questions is because... Um, I didn't give them everything. I didn't tell them every part of the story. Um, and, and this is just something that I would share with anybody who has the honor and privilege of being a trustworthy enough individual that somebody would come forward and tell their story of sexual abuse to them is, is there are very specific things that a survivor needs to hear. Um, and the main thing is that they, they need to hear that they're believed. And, um, because part of being in the shadows is your mind convinces you that nobody will believe you. And so um, if you are lucky enough to be trusted to have somebody come and share their story with you, um, take that as an honor because all, and as a huge responsibility to, to, to that person just to let them know that, hey, man, I believe you. Hey, sister, I believe you. You know, you, this is a safe place for you because I can guarantee you this. Um, the majority of the, the first time that somebody comes to you to tell you their story, you're only probably getting 20% of the truth. Right, nobody tells all first nobody. time. Because they want to know if they're going to be believed. Because if they give you the 100% and they're not believed, then they have literally re-victimized themselves, reopened themselves up for more abuse. Technical question that I think is important, because um, I was about to go there, that... Even people that people that have admit to crimes and then victims of crimes, nobody tells everything on the first go around. It's like statistically proven. So, Absolutely. are there ways that I, as a listener, as someone who can advocate on their behalf and can be there for them, just simply be there for them, should I tell them right like pretty pretty early on? I believe you, or wait till the end, or let them get it out in their time. You know what I'm saying? Like if I wait, if I if 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 you're telling me this horrific situation that happened to you, and I don't 
respond with I believe you 30% of the way through or 40 or 50, but I wait till 100. What are you thinking mentally? Like maybe they don't believe me. They're not responding. They're not like affirm, you know, they're not like affirming. Or do you just like let them at the end, let them know I believe you. Right. And then if you want to tell me more later, like it'll come out. Like, does that make sense what I'm asking? No, absolutely makes sense. And I think that- Is there a way to prevent them from doing it in four or five parts and do it all the first time? Like, here's what happened. Is there a way to do that by letting them know? Like, more, I, I'm for you here, you know? More than likely, it won't be in one part. Okay, okay. Um, more than likely, I mean, this is a journey, right? Like, it's a journey of, of you, you are literally asking somebody to open themselves up about the most horrific thing that they've ever experienced. And so it is absolutely going to take more than just one chance for them to get the whole story out. So, um, but I think that those there, I mean, literally, and, and I think there are three magic words that every abuse survivor needs to hear. And that's that the, the person that they have trusted enough to give 30% of their story to, to have to been told, I believe you, to be told, I believe you. Um, now, obviously, in that moment, in that conversation, I think that there are oppor- opportunities to, um, you know, fill out when to do that. But they just need to know that they are believed and um, have the opportunity um, to to help. Like, just that this is a safe place for you yeah, yeah, to come and yeah, talk yeah. to me. You know, I'm not only that, not only because of, not only because um, I believe you, but because I'm going to walk with you through this, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, You know, because one of the things that I, it's not only the, not only the physical sexual abuse that happens, it's the, this idea that the abuser has done, has taken a lot from that person. It's taken their dignity from them, taken their honor from them made them into a, I mean, we are all made in the image of God, and yet that person has violated that and taken that honor from you and that dignity from you, and and in a more literal sense, almost taking your voice away from you as well. And so when a, when a victim, a survivor, is able to get their voice back enough to be able to share their story, they just have to have that lovingly massaged, if that makes sense, just to to know that this this is a trustworthy place for me to come and share my story. Are there ways that you've become stronger and better equipped to help people because of what has happened to you? Like, are there are there any redeeming things to what happened? If if there weren't redeeming things to what has happened, then I don't know how I would survive. Um, yeah, right. You know, I. If if this if there wasn't the opportunity for these things to be redeemed, um, I don't know how I would how I would have survived the last eighteen years. I mean, listen, man, I um, if you took a look at the outside of my life, you'd probably say that Kenny was a pretty successful person, but I was I was a wreck on the inside. I liken it to this idea that um, when I was sixteen years old, I was shot with a gun in my gut. And for the last 18 years, I had just tried to cover it up with some Band-Aids. Yeah. And we all know what gun... Neosporin. Yeah, a little Neosporin yeah. here, gunshot wound. But but we all know what the most damaging effect that a gunshot wound has is what's going on on the inside, right? right? 
It's the, the dead tissue that's allowed to fester. It's the, all the organs that are destroyed by the bullet come, b- bouncing around and dead tissue that has to get cut out. And, and so for the last 18 years, uh, I, would just, I would just, the Band-Aid of prayer over this gunshot wound, right. the Band-Aid of more church over this gunshot wound, the Band-Aid of more quiet time over this church, the Band-Aid of just... You need to listen to what this guy is saying to you, you know, but what, what it caused in me, and I didn't know this for 18 years, I didn't know that on the outside looking in, you would probably say, oh yeah, there's, there's nothing there, but I had all this dead tissue that was just rotting inside of me. I had this bullet that was just inside of me destroying things, and um, I just, man... So, um, so after 18 years of doing that, yeah, what was the thing oh, or man. things that finally convinced you or what, what happened to you or what did you do to finally, uh, to use the analogy of the gunshot wound, finally invite the surgeon in to like mm-hmm. actually take the bullet out and properly begin the healing process. Like what, what, what was that ha- thing that happened after 18 years? Well, it was, it was, it was a couple of things. Um, I was, um, I was married and had two kids at the time. And that shield that I had put up in front of me when I was 17 years old, 16 years old, was still there. Huh. Um, and so I started to see myself doing the same thing that Chris did to me. I started seeing myself doing that to my wife, where I would pull her in because I loved her. She was my wife, and I had this God-given desire to love her well. And then I'd be like, nope, I'm going to push you away and not let you hurt me. Pull her in, push her away. So teasing her. her. She's getting teased. Just, you know, and it was destroying our marriage. And and then I just had this anger inside of me, bro, that I can't even explain. If I felt like somebody had done wrong to me, it was like, it was was death. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're you're dead to me, you know? And I remember specifically one time, um, someone had legitimately done something to me in a work situation that I was just so angry about. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who was my mentor at, at this job. He was just a great man. And I just was v- just spewing this vitriol and anger to him about this other person. And I remember him stopping me and saying, Kenny, what, what's going on? with What's going on, man? Like, what's, what's wrong? And I just remember breaking down and going, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. And that was the moment that I was like, something is really wrong with me. And I need to go get some help. And it was during, that was about three years ago, four years ago, and it was during that time that I started to realize that I needed to um, get some real surgery done. You've been able to, so you've gone from victim to survivor to advocate. You're Mm -hmm. definitely, and we're going to get into that right now in this next part of our conversation, you have and continue to be an advocate for some really devastating situations. So let me intro this next portion of our conversation because I want to point out something that you've been a part of and you can talk or as much or as little about it as you want to. But most people listening, if they're on social media at all, will know if I mention High Point or Andy Savage or or specifically this, the, you know, the, the, the story that went around for weeks about this, this situation coming to light about how a pastor had abused the young woman 
years and years and years and years ago. The same year that I was abused. The same year that you were abused, and he got a standing ovation. Right. So because of his honesty and his openness, which wasn't honesty or openness at all, because it wasn't until he got caught, you know, two decades later. That's not honesty and openness. Oh, that's not honesty and openness. But because of his honesty and vulnerability on stage, he got a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the girl who was sexually abused, not the girl who was a victim, but the 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 perpetrator got a standing ovation. And the people thought it was a great thing. They were welcoming him back into the, you know, whatever. And that video, that situation got a well-deserved ass whooping because that should never happen. So as much or as little as you want to, what was your role in that? I didn't actually know this until we talked. Like what was your role in that story actually coming to light? Yeah, so... um we're speaking specifically, and you can, if you go on YouTube, you can type in Jules Woodson, New York Times, and see um, the video that Nick is talking about with the standing ovation. Jules is actually on there, and she's um, sharing her uh, her story, her reaction to the story that's being told. And um, <clears throat> so, just as a quick context into my my journey into being an advocate. Um, two years ago, finally had a conversation with uh, Michael and Brooks, my two best friends that were abused. These are the brothers, Chris, right? The two brothers. Um, and um, there were some things, like the first time we had ever had a conversation, just the three of us around a, we were getting some drinks at a local place in, in Carryville, and right outside, which is a suburb of Memphis. And um, just for some reason felt like it was time to have that conversation. Huh. And so I just started talking to them. Um, and one of the things that Michael said to me, Michael is one of my best friends, one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, but people in the church hate Michael um, because he is um, homosexual and because he, um, I, he identifies as a homosexual and because he um, has walked away from, his, walked away from the faith. He, he would um, identify as an atheist. Um, but Michael is one of my best friends. Um, I value his opinion over most people. Um, he has more empathy inside of him than most people that I know that go to church. Um, and I just, I, I really do care about the guy a lot. But I remember him specifically saying something to me that really um, prompted us to come forward and start asking questions again 18 years later. Um, he said one of the reasons he didn't come forward um, all those years, or he didn't go public with everything um, 18 years ago, 20 years ago now, is because um, I've known Michael since we were three years old. Um, he's always been in the, I guess if you want to call it, he's always been different, which, may, which what we always knew about it is that we always thought that Michael was gay. And um, he, um, I remember him, he, he, and you can read his story um, that he wrote, but he talks about how he grew up in the church um, knowing that he was gay, but also at the same time being taught that um, because of who he was, that he was going to die and burn in hell um, and that he was evil and that all he needed to do was to um, to start liking girls and God would be pleased with him. And and so he just, I mean, it was like, it's a really difficult, you know, high school career for him, high school years for him. Um, one of the reasons why he didn't come forward and tell his story is because he thought that if he did, that the, the the reason would that it happened to him, the reasoning that would be explained was that because he's gay, he wanted it to happen to him, and um, wow, and so which is which kind of 
made me pause and say, well, Michael, um, you know, brother, I don't think you were too far off because that was actually something that was said to me by the head pastor of the church when he met with me specifically when we decided to go public um, 18 years ago about our story to the church. Part of their cover-up was that they said, well, Chris has told us that it didn't happen to you, so he's telling me to my face as a 17-year-old without my parents there, well, your abuse didn't happen, number one, and that Michael's gay, so Michael wanted it to happen. And so those were things that were said to me. That's evil. It's evil. That's it's evil. pure evil. It's evil. And I remember Michael, the look on his face, man, um, he, he just recoiled in anger, recoiled in shock. And it was at that moment, because at the same time, we had found out that Chris um, had left our church without any kind of justice being served by the you know, city of Memphis, left our church, went to another church, and abused, I think, 11 other boys um, all the way up until 2004. And then in 2004, he got caught at that church, and they dismissed him the same way that, they, that our church did, and he just kind of fell off the map. Well, we had found out not long before that that he was working at the largest public library in the city of Memphis that does after-school programs for oh, at-risk urban kids in the city of Memphis. And he was working the audio-visual um, space for this after-school program. So from 2004 to 2016, he had found new victims. Because one of the things that I want people to understand as, they, as they're listening to this, abusers don't stop. They don't stop unless they are caught and removed from society. They don't stop. There, there's not like some, like, I mean, even, not to discount the work of the Holy Spirit, but there is the, the ability to abuse a child there's a defect inside someone's brain that they cannot stop unless they are removed from society. Um, and so one of the statistics that I tell people all the time is that if, if left unchecked, if left unconfronted um, and without justice towards, that, towards the abuser, um, an abuser will have 450 victims in their lifetime. Wow. And so they... We, what we knew is that at that point, Chris had thousands of victims daily in his, where, he, where he worked. And we decided to go public because I was like, man, all I can think about right now is that 15-year-old kid, that 16-year-old kid, right now in 2016, that is living with abuse that maybe Chris or somebody else did to them and is thinking nobody will believe them thinking that they're all alone, thinking that they, and thinking that they just gotta be quiet. And so I was like, you know what? I am going to step forward and tell my story publicly so that my story will be out there 100% unadulterated for the very first time. And then number two, hopefully give strength to um, other victims to come forward and tell their stories. Um, because I want them to know that they're not alone. And so that's where Jules Watson comes into play. Real quickly, sorry, before we do Jules. Um, Chris, mm -hmm. is he still working at this library? So we filed police reports, and um, the, the police, the sex crimes division of the Memphis Police Department didn't want to pursue because of statute of limitations. Um, in 2000, and so here's just another technical side of this. In the state of Tennessee, um, statute of limitations up until 2006 were um, 
uh, you had 364 days after your 18th birthday to um, to file a, a criminal complaint. Um, if you if you were when the day you turned 19, can't do it anymore. You can't do it. The statute of limitations is done. In 2006, the state of Tennessee um, got a little bit more wise about it and said, "Okay, we'll change the statute of limitations to the age of 45." And so our situation, since it happened in 1996-97, was outside of the statute of limitations because we up until up until because so we had we were looking for victims of Chris all the way to 2004, but it was when he left that church in 2004 and moved to the library that we were like, well, you know, so we were like, okay, so let's go public with this so that maybe if we go on all the news stations and all this kind of stuff, maybe somebody will see it and say, hey, my son went to that, you know, after school program and maybe we can find somebody from 2006 on and see if they'd be willing to come forward and press charges and Chris would go to jail. Um, but obviously, so that was our main goal. The second part of it was just to remove him from that position. Um, we went to the police department and we're si- I remember, it was so funny, man. I haven't told many people this. I remember sitting in that sex crimes division, do, filing my p- police report, and people just kind of looking at me like, eh, dude, this is outside of limitations, man. Like, there's really not much we can do. And then all of a sudden, the lieutenant of the sex crimes division gets a phone call from uh, the mayor, or the mayor's office. And somebody had reached out to the mayor and said, there's a guy up there filing a police report right now at the sex crimes division, and they're kind of stalling, and they're not wanting to do anything. Um, can you help us? Um, this guy is a employee of the city of Memphis. And so the mayor's chief of staff called Lieutenant of the sex crimes division and said, figure this out now, like take this report, do your due diligence and let's take care of this. And so they took my report, um, went and talked to Michael and Brooks after they filed their report, did their investigation, the Memphis public library suspended Chris, pending investigation, and then a few few months later fired him from his job. So, And that's all I know from that point. I haven't heard anything else. But no, he's not working at that library anymore. Well, that's good. I mean, get him away from right. those kids. Okay, Jewel, sorry. So that was in December 16th, or I mean, December 2016, 2017. Um, we were telling our stories. You know, there, after I told my story publicly for the first time on Facebook, Man, I can't tell you in the in the next two months, I probably had two hundred to three hundred right, different yeah. people reach out and just say thank you for telling your story. Let me tell you mine. All of them private. All of them private, saying I don't want to come forward. I don't want to do what so you did. So all these people that came, two three hundred, none of them had told their story. Never. Virtually, none to, of them to note to anybody. Wow. And they said thank you for sharing your story. We want to tell you. Let me tell you mine. And I just I I valued that. Well. December 1st of 2017, um, Jules was um, looking at on her computer and somehow stumbled across Andy's Twitter account. And that was the day that Matt Lauer's stuff had come out. And yeah. um, Andy had written some super sarcastic tweet about sex within boundaries doesn't work or something like that. And um, just being real snarky about the whole situation and saying, you know, condemning Matt Lauer for what he did, which absolutely Matt Lauer deserves to be condemned. Um, But it just struck Jules, the hypocrisy of it struck Jules because she's like, hold up, bro. Like, you know what you did to me. And so she, she wrote him an email on December 1st, 2017. And it was, the subject line was, do you remember? And, and you, I mean, it's all over the internet. You can see it. Do you remember when you did this to me? And she explicitly went through what he did to her. And she says, well, I do. 
I remember me too, Jules Woodson. And um, so that night on December 1st, she's just so amped up that she, she was like, wow, I just wrote him an email that she started looking online for stuff about Andy. Stumbles across my story, Michael's story, and Brooks's story and notices, and the reason she stumbled across it is because Andy's name um, was, and this is, a, this is a much more convoluted, Andy and Chris Conley from High Point Church were involved in us coming forward two years ago um, and did some really dirty, dirty stuff to us. Um, and so when we told our stories publicly, their names, their were, names in were in there. High Point's involvement into our story coming forward. Um, and so she saw our story and read it and was like, oh my gosh, the guy who abused me is actively covering up other people's abuse right now. So she calls a buddy of hers named Darcy and, Dar- and says Darcy had about a year before had kind of pressed her on what really happened because of what the church said happened was totally different from what really happened. And so Darcy was like, I think something else is going on. So she reached out to Jules and said, hey, I'd love to hear your story if you'd be willing to tell me. So Jules told her story to her and then went a year without talking to Darcy. Well, then December 5th of 2017 reaches out to Darcy and said, hey, I found these stories of these three guys in Memphis that are telling their story and Andy's involved in it. Um, would you reach out to Kenny and talk to him and see if we can set up a time to talk? So the next thing I know, I'm getting a Facebook message from a lady named Darcy. And um, she's like, hey, I've got a a friend that wants to talk to you. Um, It's very important for her to talk to you. So then I jump on the phone with Jules, and she tells me her story about being abused by Andy Savage. And it was just like a, a gut punch, man. It was shocking to me to hear that story. And so what I did... She decided to go public with her story about Andy on January 5th, 2018. I was on the phone with her probably every day from December 5th to January 5th and just walking her through it, man. I mean, she was struggling with confronting it all over again, right? The fear, the the ripping of that Band-Aid, just the, the... the reliving of, of what happened to her was just traumatizing. But it was unbelievable, man, over the month that we got the chance to talk every day. From December 5th to January 5th, just this transition that I saw in her, this, this healing that I started to see in her where it went from being, I can't even talk to you without crying, to by January 3rd, 4th, and 5th, she was like, I want to come forward and tell my story because I want to help others. I want to help others be able to tell their stories because this is a huge problem in the church. And so I was a part, my role in Jules' story being told was that we just walked her through the whole process, how I did it, how I told my story, walked her through the whole healing process and, and just shared with her, um, you know, was able to just be a listening ear for her as she told her story. Well, thank you for doing that. I mean, I think um, it's, it was a tragic thing that came out but I'm glad that more people are, whether it's through people like you, patiently walking through this with them. I mean, you could, you could have ignored that Facebook message. been like, this is weird. I don't have any attachment here. I'm not going to do that, right? You could have done that. And maybe today, Andy would still be... So a bigger part of the story is that he, he got the standing ovation, all the backlash that came from it. What, a month later, he resigned? 
Yeah, it was about a month and a half later. Well, there was they they did a couple of investigations into him. Um, the uh, as a law firm out of Fort Worth, Texas, came in and did an investigation. I mean, you can you can listen to all this stuff online; it's everywhere. Right. Um, he did interviews with a um, local radio radio yeah, show. Yeah, I listened to that guy named Ben Ferguson, who is a CNN analyst. He's a um, conservative right wing, which is which was so weird because. We had no, there was no reason for him to be on that show. We didn't know why he was there, but but you could listen to the, the, the problem with the problem with if if you were able to look at at that situation with without any kind of bias in your in your mind, whether it's two victims, two survivors, or to, towards the church, towards Andy, um, you would be able to see what I told Jules throughout that whole process as she decided to tell her story was the greatest weapon that you have in all of this is the truth. And so tell the truth. Every time you get the chance, every time you get the chance to tell your story, tell the truth. And you don't have to worry about anything if you just tell the truth. And so, man, we vetted, I vetted her for a month before she told her story publicly. Yeah. And had her tell me over and over and over again her story, and it never changed, ever. Within a matter, on January 5th, when her story came out, Andy put out a statement that night, Friday night, January 5th, they did something on Sunday where he got that standing ovation, yeah. and then he did that Thursday interview with with Back, Ben Ferguson. Yeah. All within that one week, his story changed four times in that in in all three of those different mediums that he used to, to get his story out there. And I kept telling Jules, just tell the truth because he keeps opening his mouth and he is telling lies every single time. Even the initial statement was not true. I mean, the problem that everybody. The problem in that and in, in how it was handled by the church 20 years ago in, in the Woodlands, Texas, by Steve Bradley and Larry Cotton, was that they were willing to allow this narrative that there was some like mutual relationship between the two of them and that um, they kissed and that was it. Well, if you know the true story about what happened, you 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 know that Andy groomed her for two years before he did what he did to her. And Jules was in a very vulnerable position because of some stuff that had happened a year before. I mean, she's talked about it online. Um, her parents were going through a divorce at the time. About six months before this happened with Andy, she had been assaulted at a party by um, a high school party by a classmate of hers. And Andy was the only person in the world that knew that that had happened to her. And and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of... of grooming techniques that he used on her because she was in a very vulnerable position. And so, yeah, um, it, it was, it was, a it was pretty incredible to see their response and their reaction because even when he got the, the, the going away party in the Woodlands, Texas at the Woodlands, Texas church, um, from the beginning in all this, Jules has always been looked at as the person who, destroyed Andy Savage's life, right? Like, she's responsible. And it, I just find it so hypocritical that they use the idea of age of consent on somebody like Jules, who was 17 at the time. And they say, well, she was a 17-year-old woman who um, consented to a sexual act with a 23-year-old boy. Like, he's 23 years old. He shouldn't Jeez. have been. He's, he, you can't hold him responsible. We were all 23 years old at one time. Every, boy, every guy was a 23-year-old. We couldn't keep our thing in our pants, you know, that kind of stuff. But yet, when you turn it around on Jules, it's, well, you were 17 years old. The age of consent was 16. You, you can't, you know, she was a, a, an adult. 
Yeah. But but see, here's the thing. That's how women are treated throughout the entire country. Right. That's how that's how unless you are and we're about to dive into something totally different. Unless you are a white dude in this country, every excuse is given to you as a white guy in this country to to mess up and make mistakes and not to take responsibility for it. But if you are not a white guy in America, right. then Everything is, look at, oh, I'm about to dive off into Trayvon Martin. Dadgummit, I'll stop. <laughs> we get it, though. Yes. No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fucked up, man. Um, so hypocritical. But I'm so glad. Here's what, I, here's what I'll say. Let's begin to land the plane. Um, but I'm very, like, your tragic story has taken a hopeful turn. Right. I'm very glad for that. I'm very glad that you telling your story resulted in several hundred people coming and telling you their story. Right. Maybe for the first time ever, they were they felt confident enough to tell someone their story. That's hopeful. It's tragic that what happened to them happened to them. Absolutely. But it's hopeful that they, because that's the beginning. You've had that gaping wound for 18 years. What what ended the gaping wound? It's still a wound there, but what began the ending to like the, the oozing and all the stuff because you weren't healing it? Telling your story, absolutely, just getting it out, and so you being a, a a a medium for that happening for hundreds of other people, including Jules, who was able to come out and get this man out of leadership of a church, a man, uh, a, a man that is supposed to be leading people um, in a religious setting with 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 uh, he he needs to be out of that position, so absolutely. that that was accomplished. And so, what I'd love to talk about for the last few minutes. What are you doing now? Yeah. Besides, be, I mean, and I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying that the other stuff, like, besides being an advocate and helping people in their journey, what is, yeah, what is the big thing that you're doing right now? Yeah. So, and I appreciate you asking that because, um, you know, one of the things that I think needs to happen, and and you hit the nail on the head with one of the, the part that is going to allow true healing to happen is when. You take victims and survivors that are in the shadows for so long and shine light on that on their situation and and expose it to the masses. And so, um, uh, we are in the process um, of of trying to help other people tell their stories in a more um, in a more in a cinematic, beautiful way, um, in a in a safe way. And so. About two months ago, I had the opportunity to meet a guy in Memphis named Chase, and um, Chase is a filmmaker in Memphis, and um, we were talking about my story and his story and just walking through how telling stories is so important, and um, we tossed around this idea of doing a documentary, and um, instantly when I when I we were talking about the documentary, I said, listen, what I want this documentary to be about is allowing victims to tell their stories of sexual abuse in a safe, um, poignant, beautiful way. Um, because there is a sense of, of power of, of that person's voice that was ripped away from them so many years ago, giving them the opportunity to get their voice back by telling their story by being able to share what happened to them um, and knowing that they're doing it in a place where they are believed and where they are, um, where they're safe. Um, and, and so we are in the process right now of, 
of working on a documentary. Um, and it's tentatively titled um, The Voiceless. Um, the idea of it is we want to give people that have had their voices taken away from them and give them their voices back. Um, and so you're going to be, in this documentary, going to be hearing a lot of stories from voiceless people who are taking their voice back. Um, so that's the first part of that documentary. The second part is it's kind of a larger larger idea of, man, how did we get here? How did the church get here to where um, sexual abuse, um, the enabling of sexual abusers, um, and uh, subsequent cover-ups has become almost like a cottage industry in the, in the um, evangelical church? Um, one of the most hypocritical things that I hear all the time is, well, at least we're not like the Catholic church. And, and my response to them is, it's worse here. It's worse. And because, I mean, people are starting to gain the strength to tell their stories. People are starting to come forward. And you're seeing some of the most powerful people in the evangelical world um, being confronted with the fact that they have sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, or sexually abused men, women, and children. And so I want to help. I want to ask and potentially with the help of some really, really um, strong professionals in this, um, uh, people who know um, the history of the church and sex abuse, I want us to help answer the question, how do we get here and what can we do to, to, to change it? What's the reform? What can we do? How can we stop it from happening and how can we change the church? Because you can stop one person from sexually abusing, but there is a systemic issue within the church right now where... There is a reason why sexual abusers look at churches as a safe place for them to, to, to commit their heinous crimes. There's a reason for that. And, and I think that there has to be, and this goes all the way back to the 30s, the 20s and 30s, when, this, when the groundwork for um, the culture that is the church now, the evangelical church, started laying the foundation for this enabling and cover to, covering up of sexual abuse within the church. And and um, I'm I'm really excited about it, man. It's it's we're just in the beginning stages right now, um, but we have lined up some incredible stories to tell, and um, I'm really really excited to to be a part of this. And my goal for it, honestly, is is that um, number one, that more people would feel the, the the strength to come forward and tell their stories. And number two, that it would be a clarion call, a, 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 a clarion call for pastors and, and leaders in the church. And honestly, man, you look, at, you look at revolutions that start. This is a revolution. The Me Too Church 2 movement is a revolution. Yeah. You look at revolutions, they're not started by people who are in leadership. No. They're started by the people. Yeah. And, and I think that we have got to take back some of the authority um, in our lives, that we have given place too much power um, and too much... Um, uh, trust in these men that call themselves men of God because they have their their pastors and it's like you we've got to um, this revolution is going to start um, has started and will continue to move on by regular folk coming out and and saying enough is enough this has to stop you know this has, this cannot be okay anymore where can people is there is there is there an, e, an ETA an, an estimated time of completion ETC? Uh, like, are, do you have any idea, or is it just is it pretty open ended right now? 
Like, when do you want this thing to be out? A year? Nine months? 15 months? So that's the interesting thing about doing a documentary is that you we're, we are in the process of like pre-production mode and setting up interviews and things like that. And um, we have a time frame that we'd like to have it done. Um, we'd like to have it done in a year, but um, the um, investor into the project um, understands that there has to be flexibility as you're telling a story like yeah. this. And so... Um, but, you know, we were just so blessed to have a, a lady um, who heard about our idea about wanting to do, do a documentary um, who, man, by God's grace, just trusts us and says, I want to I want to help fund this. And so we have one single investor in this who is great. funding the entire project. And so we are just grateful for her and her husband and um, want to do right by by yeah. their wishes yeah. in this. Um I will tell you this, this documentary is not going to be a documentary. It's going to be incredibly well done. Um, it is going to be as professional as we can possibly make it. Um, and it is not going to be one of my biggest fears is that it just becomes another piece that's added to the fodder of, of, of churches using it and saying, Oh, this is great. And just throwing it away, man, this is, there's going to be some tension in this. There's going to be some tough questions asked of some very influential, powerful people. Um, I plan on sitting down with, um, this is just cat out of the bag. I'd love to talk to Andy Savage. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to the guys who run the Southern Baptist convention and ask them, you know, what are their plans? Why, how did it get here? And what are you going to do about it? You know, things like that. So, yeah, man, um, there's going to be there's gonna be some tough conversations in this. And so it's not gonna be a it's not gonna be a um PG documentary. Yeah. Where can people keep up with just your your Twitter or is there like an is there a, a website up or what's the best way to do it? We're that? in the process of putting together a website. Again, like I said, we're just in we're yeah. in complete pre production mode right now. Um, you can follow me at um, at uh, Kenny S nine hundred one on Twitter, um, and yeah, you'll see a lot of my um, advocating that I do online. You'll see conversations that I have. I will um, be posting updates about the voiceless and um, potential vlog interviews and you know vlog behind the scenes kind of stuff as we start traveling. Um, we're gonna be we're gonna be hitting the road in middle of May and start just busting it to get it done. Um, but we're we're gonna be going everywhere, man. We're gonna be hitting every 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 big thing you can think of, every big person you can think of. We're gonna be talking to them. So, Kenny S nine hundred one. Yes, on Twitter. Last question. Uh, same question I ask for everybody, but I'm always interested to hear. Um, it's about your life and legacy. Uh, hypothetically, I'm giving your eulogy on the day that you die, um, and all of your friends, your family are there the people you've advocated for, Michael Brooks, like everybody's there, right? All these people that you have influence over throughout your entire life. They're all there to mourn and celebrate your life and legacy. And again, hypothetically, for some odd reason, they asked me to do it. What, what would you hope that I would say on that day about your life and legacy? Man, I would hope that somebody, I hope that, I hope Nick, I hope you would get up there and you would say that Kenny loved well, um, that... Um, there wasn't a person that came across him that didn't feel safe. Um, no matter what their background, no matter what they look like, where they came from. Um, and that I would hope that, um, 
Man, that's a, that's a good question. I, you know, again, I think that I, I had to make a choice a couple of years ago about what I wanted my legacy to be um, regarding work and family. And, and I think, number one, first and foremost, I would say I would hope that you would say, man, Kenny loved his wife and his two kids well, um, that he was a great husband and a great father, that he loved people, um, and that he was that empathy was his was was his was oozed out of him. It's a life well lived. I hope so, man. Kenny, thanks for joining us today. Um, this was impactful, full of tragedy and hope. And I hope many people listening will maybe some will get courage to share their story. Um, but I hope that everyone will uh, wait impatiently and patiently for the forthcoming documentary. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening, friends. Hard stuff, I realize that, but many times giving a damn is hard. If you need to process through anything you've heard or felt during this conversation, please contact Kenny on social media. You can also contact me by private messaging me on any social media platform, all the major ones, or you can send me an email at hello at nicklapara.com. Now, this is also important for me to say, so please listen. If you have harmed yourself, want to harm yourself, or are severely depressed or anxious because of something that has happened to you, or even this conversation that you just heard, please contact one of two organizations that we have featured on the show in the past and still fully support. My buddy, Jamie Syvris, started A Voice for the Innocent. They provide support for victims of rape and sexual abuse. You can find them at avoiceforthenocent.org, avoiceforthenocent.org, and you can contact them through their site or hit them up on social media. Another past podcast guest, Jamie Turkowski, started to write Love on Her Arms. They present hope and help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. And their website is twloha.com, twloha.com. And you can also find them all over social media at that same handle, T-W-L-O-A-H-A. You can find show notes and links for everything I've mentioned by visiting letsgiveadam.com and look for the latest podcast episode. Click there, you'll find all the show notes and this podcast episode so you can share it. I can't wait to spend more time with you next week, friends, when I have the chance to share yet another story of another damn giver that without a doubt will inspire you toward action. I love you all. Bye for now. Bye.